From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While matchups with Missouri have been anything but easy since the Tigers joined the SEC, the Gators used some of their patented second-half magic to leave Columbia with a victory, capping off a 6-2 mark in conference play. Meanwhile, men's basketball continued trying to work out some of their early-season shooting woes, falling out of the top 25 in the process. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry join us to discuss football's solid showing, Grenard's dominance, Florida's mindset with the SEC title out of play, the oddity of a bye week before the season finale, basketball's reliance on youth and the external pressure squeezing Mike White's team, Pete Alonso's Rookie of the Year recognition, and great team comebacks in the PAT. Then, senior wide receiver Freddie Swain reflects on his growth from where he started, his favorite catches, and much more. But first, while some wins are pretty and can easily fill up a highlight reel, sometimes just have to grind out a victory regardless of the curb appeal. So to open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we asked them to share key takeaways from Florida's success in the show-me state. Well, they just made some plays, Adam, when they had to. Uh, the defense uh, was, you know, really good from the start. This was a Missouri team that, you know, you looked at their numbers at home compared to the road. It's It, it was hard for me to remember looking at how different a team was uh, home and on the road. Missouri was 5-0 at home, averaging more than 40 points, averaging more than, I think, 480 yards a game. You know, in Florida's defense, John Grenard was excellent. He was the best player on the field uh, for both teams that day. Uh, five tackles for loss, two sacks. Florida's defense held him to 256 yards total, six points, uh, two straight games now. The Gators' defense is not allowed. Uh, an opponent in the end zone the fifth time this year, guys. They've got three shutouts in two games where they, you know, allowed only a, a field goal or, or multiple field goals. So they start with defense and then the offense, you know, they, they, they were moving the ball early, uh, but they, they would have a negative play each drive that just kind of stalled the drive. And you figured, okay, eventually they're going to get it worked out. And sure enough, it took until the third quarter this time. They only led, what, 6-3 at halftime, third quarter. Kyle Trask, you know, hits a Josh Hammond on a nice touchdown pass where Hammond made an adjustment on the ball. And then LaMichael Piron made a really uh, nice catch, got one of his feet in the corner of the end zone. And at that point, it's 20-6. to And you just tell Missouri they, they were going to come back. Uh, it, was, it was what I call a very ho-hum win. But it's the kind of win, Adam, that if you are going to be a top 10 team like the Gators uh, have been most of this season, if you're a team that's going to possibly play in a New Year's Six Bowl game, uh, you win those kind of games. You roll out of bed at about 8 in the morning, uh, go to the stadium and start playing at 11 a.m. local time. I think kickoff, the temperature was 45 degrees. A lot of players bundled up, but there was also some guys out there without shirts during warm-ups. Uh, just showing that, hey, we're, we're, this is what we're going to play. You know, might as well go ahead and get acclimated. But uh, it was just a, a workmanlike performance, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. And most importantly, it was their ninth win, which matches the regular season total from last year. 
I gave them a six and two record in the SEC East, which is one win better than last year. And of course, there was some hope that maybe by going out there and taking care of business, that they would have good news when they landed back in Gainesville. If uh, Auburn could have upset Georgia, we still kept the SEC East up for grabs until next week. Of course, Auburn, you know, tried to come back, but uh, the Gators were on the plane back here in Gainesville when when Auburn's final bid at that uh, comeback failed. And, you know, at that point, everybody kind of sighed and got off the plane. Uh, Georgia clinched the East, so, you know, that's not going to happen for the Gators this year, but they still have a chance at a 10-win season uh, and possibly more uh, with Florida State uh, in a couple weeks. And now it's just really coming out of that and get another bye week and then trying to get healthy for their, their final regular season game. Yeah, he used the word workmanlike. I was going to use the word maybe like um, mature, professional kind of response because, you know, you're going on the road and in a place that hadn't been kind to visiting teams and you got some inconveniences with regard to getting up so early and being on the field, literally in the state in what time, Scott? Um, 45. Not, yeah, 845 or so. And, uh, and it's just it's really, really out of your element per se. But um, to go in there and in conditions, you're not necessarily so perfect football weather from what it appeared, obviously. But I mean, it's six to three at halftime. And, you know, you just do your job in the second half and play on through and persevere. And it wasn't sexy by any stretch of the imagination, but it was it was certainly effective and certainly a hats off performance by defense and by John Grenard, who I imagine if that guy had been healthy uh, this season, um, you're talking about a, a first-team All-America candidate, SEC Defensive Player of the Year candidate, all those things. And uh, when he's healthy, he is just a home wrecker for uh, for a quarterback and for an opposing offense. He was absolutely fantastic the other day. To your point there, Chris, it'll be interesting to see. I was having this conversation earlier with somebody. I mean, I mean, he's going to go down as the best grad transfer, I think, in Gators history. <laughs> I don't think we can – that points uh, up for argument unless I'm missing somebody. But I think if who if not for Jalen Hurts, do you think? What about have, Malik Zaire? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot about him. That yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it comes down to guys like Malik Zaire, Austin Appleby, and there's probably another name or two. But I think if not for Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma, he might be the best in the country this year. We saw another one in that game, Kelly Bryant, the former Clemson quarterback, but. I think Grenard got the best of him that day. Speaking of Grenard, I think that was really my main takeaway as well from that game. And it got me thinking, too, not just how maybe Florida's two losses this year could have been different if Grenard was 100% healthy, but beyond that, who was the last defensive player that was this dominant for Florida? A guy who could almost take over a game, which is hard to do on defense. It's usually you talk about an offensive player like a quarterback or maybe a running back. But he's been as dominant a defensive player as I can remember in a long time. Javon Kurse comes to mind in those late 90s games. I mean, the, the Auburn game, I remember on the road and a couple other games where he would flash big time. But, uh, you know, I don't want to lump him in to that category because he certainly has carved out a niche for himself. But every time, I mean, the guy just, I mean, big play after big play. And they're all like, like devastating plays to the offense. How many tackles for lost Scott? Five? Five, yeah. Yeah. It was right from the start of the game. He had sacks. He had stops on the run game. Uh, yeah, good point. I mean, Adam, obviously, he's had a lot of great defensive players over the years. And he's a guy who's doing it up front, kind of like, you know, Ja'Kai Polite had a great season last year. But I just, you know, it, it wasn't like as consistent maybe just in the run game, in the passing game. Uh, I looked at a guy like Brandon Spikes at linebacker. 
I mean, I remember him. You felt that he was taking over a game defensively back in when he was here. But Javon Curse is another one. I'm sure there's other guys. Alex, Alex Brown. Brown. But in recent years, uh, certainly in the Dan Mullins two years, if you look at the players I've had defensively, uh, I would probably, you know, have Grenard at the top of my list of guys. I'd want, want healthy and they're ready to play. Scott, you mentioned by the time the team landed, uh, everyone was aware that you know the SEC championship was no longer a uh, a carrot to strive for as Auburn was able to pull off the upset. So, you know, what does that mean for Florida now going forward? Because you know you've got two games left in the season. You've got a game against Florida State, then you've got a bowl game, which you hope is New Year's Six game. But you know, again, it's not quite where they thought they were headed a few weeks ago. From what you've gathered, being at the press conferences and, and talking to players. How juiced up are they still about these opportunities out there if they don't have the chance to go to Atlanta? I think we've seen that the last couple of weeks, Adam, that this team has been able to kind of maintain some focus after the disappointment. Because even though there was still the possibility of Atlanta, I mean, it was it was pretty remote. There wasn't a great chance of Georgia losing both of its remaining SEC games. Uh, now that's out the door. So you saw them handle, uh, handle Vanderbilt. And you saw them go on the road to Missouri. And now really... It should be easier if you think about it because now you've got one of the great rivalry games that players come to Florida to play. You got Florida State and you have a bowl game. Uh, so I think there's still, if you're a player, and I'm sure Dan Mullen will, has been preaching this, I'm sure we'll continue to, to get this message across. I mean, you have a chance to, you know, still potential 11 win season which I wrote a couple weeks ago, Florida's only had seven of those. It's not something that happens very often. So if you can beat Florida State at home and then go uh, and win your bowl game, you know, you'll finish 11-2. and two. You'll finish, by that time, likely number six or above in the country. That's a heck of a season, uh, no matter how you look at it. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk that, you know, Florida's in the right direction. They had another great season, but they still didn't win the East, but at the same time, uh, you're really setting up for the future well if you can go out and finish with an 11-win season and beat Florida State and get that rivalry every two in a row, and Florida hasn't done that, obviously, since the Urban Meyer days. When beyond that, Florida hasn't beaten Florida State at home since 2009. It's also the last time Florida won a second 10 games in a row, correct? In 2008-2009. That is correct, yep. Yeah. Yes, plays right in the storyline of the whole thing. And, and I mean, back in the 90s, people took 10-win seasons for granted around here. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that Steve Spur got so frustrated uh, toward the end of his tenure, I guess that last year, that 2001 season where they didn't beat Tennessee, that last game that was pushed back because of 9-11. But uh, that team won 10 games, won the Orange Bowl by 33 points and finished third in the country. And everyone was looking around, going, oh, what happened to the Gators this year? Oh, well. 10 wins is a dangling carrot out there, and especially if it can happen, like you mentioned, and not to uh, interrupt your segue, uh, a Florida State game that's going to be a a pretty cool senior night under the lights at the Swamp. So one oddly with the schedule, Florida State is the next game, but there's a a bye week before the final game. Uh, I guess at this point of the year, everyone would like some rest, but this is unusual. This is usually the slot where Florida would play uh, one of their FCS-type opponents that we saw earlier this year. Uh, Scott, how does this affect the preparation to have this weird off week before the final game of the regular season? I think in the biggest way, Adam, is just getting guys an extra week of rest at a a time, like you mentioned, that you usually don't have. Obviously, you saw it at Missouri. Uh, Jabari Zaniga and Amari Bernie, neither guy traveled out there. They were hopeful that they both could be ready, but 
uh, neither was. So now they get this week to continue to recovery. And now uh, Dan Mullen, after the game, said that, you know, Zaniga should be definitely ready to go. Now they're hopeful that, that Bernie can get back out there. And so I think for for Florida, that's the biggest impact it has. And, and then, you know, going out to Missouri, you, if anyone got banged up out there, just just at this time of year, everybody could use a little a little break that usually don't get. So Florida gets one, and both teams should come into this one uh, fired up and healthy, considering they both have a bye week. So Florida, Florida State, under the lights of the swamp, it's going to be very exciting. Florida's chance to get to 10 wins in the regular season, and uh, the carrot dangling, as we mentioned, probably very likely a New Year's Six Bowl berth for the second straight year. Uh, moving over to basketball, Chris, you know, we talked last week about kind of an, an inauspicious start for the Gators, and that storyline really continued in the last two games since we spoke, and two and two at this stage, and I think a lot of these games have had a lot of similarities to it. The most glaring of them, this is a young team that is playing like a young team. Yeah, and it's a it's a young team that's playing like a team that's uh, can't put the ball in the basket, and that includes, for lack of a better phrase, the, the young veterans on the team. Just to glass over what happened Sunday at the University of Connecticut, um, incredible atmosphere for that game, Adam. You know, over 10,000, a really cool arena where they're right down on top of you, and um, uh, Florida got off to a pretty good start. I think scored the first six points of the game, um, looked good in doing so, and then hit one of those dry spells. And you go in the locker room with 20 points, 20. And, uh, I mean, I, I believe they shot 24% in the first half, and yet it's 25 to 20. You know, UConn wasn't exactly uh, ripping the nets down either because Florida is going to play good defense most of the time. Um, Connecticut is a team that likes to play fast, uh, not particularly disciplined defensively. They're also an older team. Uh, St. Joe's actually came in there a couple nights earlier, scored 96 on them. Wow. Um, so to, here's Florida's getting 20 in the first half. Uh, St. Joe's, I, I mentioned that they were up 27 in the first half on their way to scoring 52 by halftime. So, uh, I don't know fl- how much Florida, you know, was thinking, oh, we're going to go in there and do that. Well, they're not, they're not built that way. First of all, St. Joe's plays a lot faster. They probably played to the same temp, similar tempo to Connecticut, which plays, I think, a top 80 team in terms of tempo. Um, Florida is playing very slowly right now as they try to figure out some things offensively. But the one thing that they have to figure out offensively, Adam, is putting the ball in the basket. I mean, uh, I'm looking, I jotted down these numbers before we got on this podcast. I'm looking at Scotty Lewis. I'm looking at Andrew Nemhard. I'm looking at, uh, Noah Locke and Trey Mann and Quez Glover. Those are your five guards who are playing. Uh, in the rotation. They're 40 for 138 combined. That's 29%. From the three-point line, they're 14 to 64. That's 21.8%. Uh, Noah Locke specifically, sophomore, set a freshman record last year with 81 threes, one of the better three-point shooters uh, in the league last year. He's five for 22 from three. So, I mean, something's got to be, they're not, they're not shooting the ball with confidence. These guys make shots in practice. Uh, they shoot a ton of shots in practice. They stay and shoot extra shots in practice. They have specific three-point drills, competitive drills at the end of practice. Uh, they have them in, in between. I mean, this isn't a lack of preparation by any stretch of the imagination. But what you're seeing right now when this offense rolls out, in addition to being slow, they look uncertain at times. And I think that's um, a byproduct of youth. Now, we see, we can sit here and say, well, why is this team so young when you got Kerry Blackshear out there and you got uh, Andrew Nemhard and, and Noah Locke and Keontae Johnson, who started a combined uh, 82 games last season? That's fine. 
but uh, it's a new mix of guys, and the other team's getting up for you, man. I mean, you're, you're number fifteen rolls in there into UConn. They were ready. Those fans and those team, those players coming off a bad, an ugly home loss. Like I said, they're down twenty-seven in that game at one time. They're ready to jump on the Gators, and they did. Um, the combination of of that with these mix of these uh, of these new guys going on the road for the first time. I can't, you know, Trey Mann is a really good bucket getter in practice. He's just really had trouble. Nine of twenty-eight from the floor, two of twelve from three. He's even four for eight from the free throw line. He's an elite shooter and scorer. Um, he suffered a concussion in the second half of the game, so I don't know what his status is going to be. I mean, he's—I would imagine he's probably going to miss a couple games when the Gators go to uh, South Carolina for the Charlton Classic this this week. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, he was better uh, uh, Monday than he was on Sunday night, you know, after the trip home. But uh, uh, this Mike White talks about trial and error and process and all that stuff. And, um, you know, he's got his work cut out for him a little bit to get these guys comfortable and get them in some kind of a rhythm because it's not a good looking product right now. And it's certainly not an effective product. But he thinks right now until some things uh, start running a little smoothly, the best thing for this his team to do is play a little slower and muck it up a little bit and try to win with defense, which has been the uh, hallmark of this team since he got here four seasons or four years ago. We talked last week about a, a panic level among some fans after FSU. <laughs> um, I think for, for Mike White, you know, his comments after UConn, they were pretty stern and he was pretty tough on himself, too, in terms of what else they can do to instill this confidence and, and get guys to make shots again. Uh, how, how hard do you think he's taking this early stretch, given the expectations and the, the fingers that are pointed in his direction? Well, he's always very hard on himself when it comes to this stuff. And uh, I mean, he doesn't pay attention to the, to the outside stuff. I mean, this isn't a guy that's on Twitter and, and does he probably know it's being said? Of course, all coaches have that kind of element of self-awareness. But uh, these fans that are that want to fire coaches after three and four games, um, they're not administrators in athletic programs. And they're certainly not the athletic director. This one, I just gave Mike White a contract extension through 2024. OK, so Mike White's not going anywhere. He's got a staff that's saying, look, coach, we got a good team and they know they got a good team. They know they have a lot of talent on this team, but they're not cohesive right now and they're not confident right now. You know, the weight of expectations is is showing on these guys. So how are you going to respond to that? I said before the season started, I mean, they looked at some of these practices they had were some of the best practices I've seen since I've been here. And I saw four seasons of Billy Donovan uh, behind the scenes. OK, so this is a very, very talented team. But going into the year, Mike White said this a few times. Yeah, we look really, really good, but uh, we haven't played a game yet. We haven't had to distribute minutes yet. Uh, guys don't know what their roles are going to be or how much they haven't been taken out of a game for screwing up and we haven't hit adversity yet. Well, guess what? All those things are happening now and they are in an adversarial situation right now. Uh, and how you react to it. I remember Billy Donovan used to say he loved this kind of time. He loved the chaos. He loved the adversity. He loved what he called rock bottom. He goes, you get to rock bottom and you get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and all the pressure is crushing you and all this stuff is coming out of your body he goes that's what you're made of okay that's when you find out who you really really are hmm. well this team is getting pelted and they have fallen out of the top 25 which is probably a great thing there's no reason this team should have been number six it was all based on expectation and talent and what have you and i think mike said a pretty uh, profound thing after the fsu game when he said the reality of this team is that we have one 
great grad transfer who's played three games here. He goes, we have three sophomores returning from a team that lost 16 games. We have two fourth-year juniors who are hurt and haven't played. And we have a bunch of freshmen who have no idea what it takes to win at this level. That's who they are right now. And that doesn't mean that's who they are in January. But there was an assistant coach here a few years ago. He's now one of Billy Donovan's assistants, Mark Dagnall. He was a G League head coach at Oklahoma. He used to say, he goes, I like the process more than the games. Well, not everybody would agree with that. But the process can often be uh, a lot more interesting and sometimes pretty damn rewarding. And they have to find a happy place here. And whether that means uh, there will be sports psychologists coming in, there will be motivational speakers coming in. There will be there will be film sessions ad nauseum. There's going to be a lot of things, but uh, they're not just going to sit around and take this. They're going to try to figure it out. That's what they get paid for. And again, this this is a talented team. Everyone knows that this uh, inability to put the ball in the basket is going to end. I don't know when it's going to end. It may not be in South Carolina this week when they go up for that, a pretty decent tournament up in, uh, up in Charleston. Um, it's, it's a long way till the Southeastern conference season starts. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, mid-major kind of beating high major upsets. Uh, that was a hell of a place to have to go in and win a game for a guy like Scotty Lewis, a guy like Trey Mann in your fourth game of the season. Um, maybe they weren't ready for it. Maybe the bright lights got them a little bit, but I mean, there's going to be more opportunities and it's, you know, they're going to flip it around pretty quickly. They're going to be on the floor again Thursday at the Charleston Classic. I want to talk about a, a former Gator that is tearing things up right now, having no issues doing what he does best, which is hit balls out of the park. And that is Pete Alonzo, who last week was named almost unanimously the National League Rookie of the Year. And Scott, this is a guy who, you know, it, it's not a surprise given what he did for the Gators, but I can't think of another player, at least on that side, that's been as effective and as much of a star as he has so quickly. No, he's uh, he's blossomed uh, not only on the field, but off the field, it's obvious. Uh, he's he's kind of uh, riding it out for everything it's worth. Uh, you know, uh, sidebar to him winning the uh, National League Rookie of the Year, you know, it's voted on by uh, the Baseball Writers Association of America. 30 members vote, and I remember voting for that award a few times in the American League, and one guy didn't vote for him, and <laughs> New York Papers, obviously, they wrote a lot about that guy. Uh, he works for the who athletes. was it, by the way? Andrew Bagley, who used to work out, he still works out on the West Coast, covers the Giants. Uh, used to be in newspapers, now works at the Athletic, and yeah, he voted Atlanta pitcher Mike Soroka the number one with his vote. And uh, you know what, Soroka had a good year, and as a Braves fan. I think he's got a bright future, but there's no way that you can vote for anybody, in my opinion, other than Alonzo. The 30th man in the history of the majors to hit 50 home runs in a season. Did it as a rookie, and now he's uh, living it up. And, uh, you know, for the baseball history, Adam, I mean, not re- I mean, they've had good major leaguers over the year. Brad Wilkerson, obviously, is one that stands out. Uh, but this decade... It's kind of like been the golden era. It's almost like Kevin O'Sullivan's did with the baseball program, what Billy Donovan did with the basketball program. He started producing NBA players regularly after they would have a spot, you know, one here and there. And uh, none have done uh, anything like Pete Alonzo. And uh, congrats to him, man. I'm looking forward to seeing him back down here in campus soon, hopefully. And uh, He's, uh, he's going to be a lot more recognizable, I think, when he comes back than maybe when he was here. I love his nickname, the Polar Bear, because he looks just like one. He still looks <laughs> like a polar bear. <laughs> That's right, man. It's, it's fantastic. That's, yeah. 
Very good to see, and no doubt he's got a, a very bright future up there with the Mets. Though hopefully not too bright a future for the team, because Scott and I, we ride for the Braves. Chris does for the Nationals. They seem to be in a better place than the Braves, but I don't want to talk about that because it makes me sad. Uh, let's talk instead about our PAT, which is inspired by comebacks. Uh, this past weekend, I'm not sure if you guys saw much of the Baylor and Oklahoma game, but Baylor was at home just rolling Oklahoma. It was 28-3. to And uh, certainly that score is not lost on a a lifelong Falcons fan like myself. But it got me thinking about great comebacks that that you've witnessed in person. Certainly we've all seen great comebacks on TV or watched highlights. I want to know from all of your years between the two of you, what's the best comeback you can remember seeing or covering in person? I think mine was I was uh, in my fourth year uh, covering the Bucks for the Orlando Sentinel. And they were defending Super Bowl champions. Okay. So 2003 season. And in the fourth game of the year in Tampa, it's a Monday night football game. And the Indianapolis Colts are coming in with former Bucks coach Tony Dungy on the sidelines. So it's a big deal. I mean, Peyton Manning coming in, Dungy had, had been fired two seasons prior. John Gruden coming in the first year, won the Super Bowl. Everyone said, Oh, he won them with Tony Dungy's players. Uh, but you know, as I always say, uh, Tony Dungy didn't win the Super Bowl with Tony Dungy's players, so you can't really say that about the guy. Um, but the Bucks were winning 35 to 14 with five minutes to go in the game. Okay. 35 14 in an NFL game with five minutes to go. And then all hell broke loose. Uh, there was a long touchdown, an onside kick, uh, then a blown coverage. And next thing you know, it's overtime. And the Colts, uh, I believe then Mike Vanderjack, uh, misses a field goal in overtime but Simeon Rice is called for like using using a hand to to go up to try to block it and they get a second chance and the Colts stun the Bucks with with 24 unanswered points just an incredible meltdown that really turned the Bucks fortunes that season they did not make they were the super, the Super Bowl champion that didn't make the playoffs they finished the year seven and nine, had some injuries along the way, but they were never the same after that game. And I was never the same after that game, because if you're a newspaper writer and Scott can appreciate this and you got a 35 to 14 score on a Monday night football game at about five minutes to 12. I remember looking at uh, uh, Martin Finley and he and I both had beads of sweat running down the side of our foreheads because uh, uh, everything you've written on your screen is irrelevant at that point. And your desk was calling you saying, where's your story? Um, I don't know because I have no idea what I'm writing right now. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, back when the they were known as the Devil Rays, I remember covering a series up in New York, and this is going to be it's actually memorable for many reasons. First of all, it's the uh, trip to New York that I stayed back and got married to my wife, so that was a special moment. And also, my wife and a a couple of my friends, our future wife, I guess, on this night because we got married after the series, where it was at the game that night. Uh, this game I was getting ready to tell you about. It's Yankees uh, hosting the Rays, old Yankee Stadium. Double Rays back in those days, obviously they were the lightweights of the American League East. The Yankees were in their midst of their great run. And anytime the Rays got a win over the Yankees, it was kind of news, you know, hey, how, they beat the Yankees. Right. Uh, of course, they played 18 times a year and it only happened three or four a year. And this night, it looked like they were going to do it. They led 10-2 to two going into the bottom of the fifth inning at Yankee Stadium. The day Onomo started, was having a pretty good outing. Suddenly, they start coming back. And in the bottom of the fifth, they score four runs to make it interesting. So at that point, it's 10-6. to six. 
They had another run in the bottom of the six. It's 10 to seven, but the Rays, they, they show some life in the top of the seventh. They go up 11 to seven and, you know, feeling pretty good about themselves. They're, they're going to win this game at Yankee Stadium. Well, at the bottom of the eighth comes around and it, it was just a tough one for Travis Harper, the reliever. Back to back to back home runs. <laughs> they hit four in a row at one point. They scored 13 runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Come on. 13? Yes. And if you can imagine a baseball crowd, kind of like an SEC football crowd that's just going nuts. That's why Yankee Stadium was like that night. And the Rays end up losing 20 to 11 uh, after leading 10 to 2. And <laughs> it, it's just, it's just one of those nights that I'll always remember in my sports writing career. More so what happened after. I mean, Lou Pinella, you know, th- he was by this time beaten down and he only had a couple more months on the job. And, you know, Lou Pinella is still in the baseball circles. He's kind of a – he's one of those guys that they love up in New York. And, you know, a lot of riders were around him in the post game, and, and Lou, he just he just looked like a uh, the baseball that the Yankees hit all night. He almost <laughs> just felt, felt bad for him. That, that was That's just one of those my uh, memories that I have. Probably the greatest comeback. It's only a, it's a little box score in the history of sports. So and I do remember the one Chris talked about. I remember the Florida State comeback at Chokadoke. I was there. Oh yeah, yeah, I was there too. I should have should have mentioned that one too. Yeah, I mean I, I've seen some good ones in all sports, but the one that I always remember the most just that that comeback because it's very often or it's very rare you see a, a baseball team leading the game ten to two and end up losing 20 to 11. Those are the kind of great anecdotes you love to get from the uh, the wealth of experience the two of you have. Uh, but in any case, this week, uh, a little bit of a quieter week. Obviously, no football this week, but Chris will be covering basketball, heading to Charleston on Thursday, so follow him at Gators Chris. And I'm sure Scott will be tweeting about other things going on in the world of Gator sports at Gator Scott. Check him out as well, and all their content will be on FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right, thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Not only does Flora's wide receiver room have incredible talent and depth, but they also have some serious personalities to boot. As we learned nearly two years ago on episode 96, Freddie Swain provides enough charisma to fill up that room all by himself. So we wanted to check back in with the Ocala native in the twilight of his journey to get his reflections on a standout career. But before delving too far into the past, we began our chat by finding out how Florida overcame a cold morning and a challenging track record to get a much-needed win at Missouri. Oh, the key to that was just staying together as a team and not focusing on whether it's cold or what happened in the past. I mean, like the past is the past. There's nothing we can do about it. Like as long as we come out this, like we knew we had to come out this week and perform at a, at a high level, execute, you know, cleanly and just do things right and, and get things rolling no matter what time it was or how cold it was. We just had to get things rolling as a team and, and as a unit. And I think once guys like stood up in the locker room and like pushed each other and told, Hey, come on, man, y'all need to tighten up. Let's get things rolling. You know, it's coming, it's coming. Just keep, hey, stay patient. You know, mm-hmm. things like that is, is what drives this team. And I think the second half when we came out and we showed that and we executed cleanly and performed it at a high level. And you guys have been a second half team really all year. What do you think is the key to that? Is it something the coaches are saying in the locker room? Is it you guys talking amongst yourselves? What has driven that success in the second half? It's, it's, it's just guys in the locker room like knowing to trust each other and 
like, you know, putting faith in one another. And, you know, at the end of the day, the coaches call plays, but at the end of the day, we're side by side with our brothers. So, you know, things are coming, they hit different when it, when you, when it comes from one of your brothers or some guy that you look up to, or, you know what I'm saying? Somebody on the team that, that just one of your friends and, you know, he just kind of tells you, Hey, we need to pick things up. You know, it kind of, kind of like sparks a, a fire in you and makes you want to kind of do better. So you kind of just pick things up as a unit. So right about now, you would be preparing to play a game, but you got this weird situation where you have a bye just before the last game of the season. How is that affecting the flow and the preparation when you've got this weird break in the action? Uh, I honestly think it's it's for the better because uh, we get time to heal and, and rest and, you know, kind of relax. And, you know, we've been in football for, uh, for a minute, so you know, it kind of gives us a little break to just kind of humanize yourself again, you know, <laughs> kind of get back in, in, in the swing of things and, you know, just have fun with family and, and friends, you know. So you're an Ocala guy. How often did you come to the swamp growing up and did you always imagine playing on that stage? I never really came to Florida as a, as a child, but like I would watch the games on TV and I, I would see guys make plays and I'd be like, hey, I want to do that. You know, one day or maybe not at Florida, but, you know, just at on that stage at a premier stage at a at a prestigious school, you know, kind of just, you know, just as a dream as a child. And hopefully I, I fulfill that. When you think over your career, I'm sure you've, you've gotten advice from all sorts of places. What's the best advice you've ever been given and what effect did it have on you? Uh, control what you can control. That statement right there, I, I, I think for me, it's like how I live my life. And, you know, it's uh, Coach Mark told me one time, well, he used to, he used to be a strength coach here. Uh, like, you know, things weren't going right as a freshman. You know, I wanted to play and I felt like I could have played with the best of them. So, you know, of course, you're going to get frustrated. So he would always tell me a simple thing. He can control what you can control. But, you know, as a freshman, you're kind of like, oh, man, he's just telling me that or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And you're not really trying to hear that. But as I got older and, you know, I got wiser, I got a little wiser. And I, like I kind of sat out and I kind of it kind of hit me. It was like, listen, either you're going to do what you can do and all that you can do, or you're going to whine and pout and, you know what I'm saying, and mess your, your time up and your development as an athlete and as a, as a man and, and whole, whether based on somebody else's opinion or their decision on how, how things are going to go, which I can't control. So when I kind of like realized that, I was like, all right, well, that's how I'm going to live my life. And, you know, I just trying to live it. Like I go hard as I can and, and, you know, to where I know I left no, like in my heart, I left no doubt or, or, or I know that I did everything that I could do and, and, and no matter the, the results or the consequences I know that that came from me mm -hmm. what and you talked already about the impact of the guys around you and, and how much they shape you when you came in as a freshman during this time you're talking about who are the the players that you learned the most from who really showed you the ropes uh Brandon Powell hands down like I could never repay him for like some of the things that, that we've talked about and like some of the advice he's gave me, because you know things didn't go go right for him when he went when he when he was at Florida. You know, if he's like a, a like a serious athlete, like he's for real, he's like scary good. <laughs> but you know, it's just some situations that you know that you have to overcome in life, and you know you just have to overcome it. You know, like I've, I've been an underdog all my life, and BP was an underdog all his life. So that's like kind of how we like attack things. Like you know what I'm saying? Like I'm I know what it takes to get to the next level. You got to work mm -hmm. hard. You got to put it in. So. For me not to go hard, but say I want to get to the next level, it's not going to work. So me and BP, he like, BP would always tell me, listen, somebody's always watching. You know what I'm saying? So whether you're not getting the ball thrown to you, make sure you're running the right routes. Make sure you're running crisp routes. Make sure you block. And, you know, make sure you're just doing things like that. And 
Like I took that from him. He would never take reps off. He would never like take the easy way out. He would always push through it. And that's what I kind of took from him. That's still with me to this day. Well, and you said it's something you could never repay him for, but I imagine that you do try and pay it forward in some way. So looking at the guys who've now come after you, who do you think you've had the biggest impact on younger in the program and, and why did you have that impact on him? Uh, I think like all the young guys, I, I would say it's not one in particular, but I know all of them kind of like they watch me. They know like, I yeah, I like to play. I like to have fun, but when it's time to work, I work and won't, I will not let nobody outwork me. And they kind of know that. So I think just all the young guys in the program see that and, and try to take that and put that in their game. And, and you know what I'm saying? It's like, it brings the best out of everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we live in, in such a, a me, me, me society. And yet you've got this wide receiver room that's just stacked with upperclassmen, guys that are incredibly accomplished. And yet there's only one ball to go around. How have you stayed so cohesive and so supportive of each other with so much talent, but only one ball? For me, those are those are my brothers. So like, whether who I honestly doesn't matter who catches the ball, who has the most yards. Like, if one of us in that room has a good game, or one of us has catches. Like, I'm fine as long as we win and, and everybody's having fun. Like, I, I I just don't care. I'm a selfless person, and whatever's meant to be is whatever's meant to be. Hmm. We won't tell anybody that you said this. But if you could take one skill, maybe one attribute from one of the other wide receivers in that room, what would it be and why? Uh, probably KT. <laughs> That's what I thought you'd say. You want the yeah. you, you want to be your own uh, your own Madden joystick. Yeah, the way he like like his I don't know his knees work different. And, <laughs> and if I try some of this, this the stuff he did, I, I I would definitely have to be out for a couple of games. But, <laughs> Yeah, just just the way the ability to to make guys miss and things like that is what I'll take from his game. You've had so many talented defensive backs that you've gone up against in practice over the course of your career. Who's been the toughest guy to match up with on the practice field? Throughout my years, Marcus May. He's just smart. <laughs> like he knows the game. He knows like he knows splits and and if say you're out wide, he knows it's only a couple routes that you can run. So he'll like. It's like his football IQ is very high and it's impeccable. When you think back over all the games you've played in the Swamp, and obviously there's still one more that you hope will have some more memories attached to it, but are there any particular games, moments that stand out from your career in the Swamp? Uh, probably versus Auburn when I caught the one across the middle and took it to the house. That was right at the start of the game too, so I'm, I'm curious what that felt like. And when you have a touchdown that long, the way that that builds in the crowd, I mean, what's going through your head on a play like that? Uh, I was honestly just, I was just thinking, just catch the ball and try to make something with it. And then I seen like an opening between two guys and I tried to split them and I actually did. <laughs> so like once I split them, I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, I knew, knew the guys were going to be excited and I knew the crowd was going to be fired up. So, and that led to a, a good game. And when you got that long to run, like, what do you are you thinking about? What am I going to do when I cross the goal line? How am I going to celebrate this? I imagine you've got a, a good bit of time there to think about what you're going to do next. Actually, it just rolls up on you fast. So, like, I was just trying to get in there, and like, once I got in there, it just comes anything, you do anything. Would that also be? Is that your your favorite catch from your career? Um, yeah, no, probably the one from South Carolina when I kind of adjusted and dove. What makes that better than the Auburn one? Because it. Shows off like a little bit of athleticism. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, you can talk yourself up. I like that. <laughs> yeah. um, talking about guys who inspire you and, and guys you look up to, who is an athlete or a public figure that you really admire and why? Probably Larry Fitzgerald. He does a lot for 
for the Arizona like community. But not alone that, he's like he's been playing the years for seventeen years mm-hmm. and still relevant. That's hard to do. Right. Still like Arizona's number one wide up. Have you ever had a chance to meet him? No, sir. If you did have a chance to meet him, what would you say to him? What would you want to talk about with him? I football, anything. You know, <laughs> I just like to like pick guys like guys like that, I just love to pick their brains and see how they think and see like what what's their process. Playing the league seventeen years, that's a long time. Have you had a lot of chances to get feedback from guys in the league and ask those types of questions to sort of help you in your process? Uh, yeah, but I kind of don't try to swamp guys with questions like that because I know how it gets. And I play at Florida, you know, and sometimes the questions kind of get boring. And, you know, I just <laughs> try to, you know, like be friends and like I don't try to talk about football like that. So I got you. Um, you talked earlier about, you know, you're a guy who when it's time to work is going to work, but also you're known as a pretty, you know, fun loving guy off the field. I'm curious, a, a funny story from a road trip you could share with us. So like we, we had the bowl game when we played in Atlanta, mm-hmm. it was like the first night there. So we really didn't have like a curfew. Well, the curfew was kind of later, like later that night. So when I say, we, I, I don't think we went to sleep because like guys are just knocking on each other's door and running from each other catching guys finna knock on your door and grabbing them then you know play fight you know just things like that you do as as like a unit Mm -hmm. away from football what do you what do you like to do i know you don't have a ton of free time but what do you like to do when you have a chance i'd like to relax you know go see my family you know family kind of like i'm a big family oriented guy so i just like to be around them and make sure everybody's straight and you know just have fun with them what does relaxing include you guys are you watching tv going to movies what's that like uh, we'll do all types of things. We'll grab four wheelers, dirt bikes. Uh, we'll go to the beach. We'll fish. We'll, we'll go to arcades. Like we'll go to Orlando and Jacksonville. We'll do go to arcade. <laughs> like we do silly things as a family. Do you go to the part? You go to like Universal, Disney, those in Orlando? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, my brother had some younger kids and they were kind of scared of them. So we just kind of backed off, but we'll probably start going back there a little older now. What, what's your, what's your favorite ride down there? Favorite park? I ain't gonna lie, probably when I, my first, like, I really don't ride roller coasters, but my sisters that made me get on Sheikra. I was the first roller coaster I ever rode. <laughs> that's, that's a scary one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who you telling? I was actually on Sheikra. I got stung by a bee on Sheikra. Oh, no. See, so you, yeah, you, mm-mm. yeah, that wasn't, I, I don't, I don't wish that on anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you go to movies at all? I was curious, the last movie that you went to in a theater. Oh, last movie I went to in theater, Angel Has Fallen. What you think? Uh, you know, I, I just like movies like that, <laughs> action packed, nonstop you know. action. Yeah, I love movies like that. Made no sense, but nonstop action. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I gave you a blank ticket to travel anywhere in the world for a week, where would you go and why? Mm, yeah, Dubai, probably. Really? How come? I don't know. I just always wanted to go to Dubai since I was little. Hmm. If you could choose just one, what superpower would you want and why? Invisible. How come? Yeah, so I can see what people really be doing. Yeah, they talk about it. <laughs> you'd have, yeah, you'd have all the intel that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a, a few final things for you. The next time you play is going to be senior day. What, what, what goes through your mind when you think about playing in the swamp one last time? Like, they keep score. So, like, I just want to come out with a win. <laughs> you're not thinking about like going you're going to be coming out of that tunnel you're going to meet your family midfield that it's that that part not nothing about that part uh yeah that's you know that's that's gonna be good because you know fans that's the last game but 
at the end, I'm, I like to win. I just like to win. Well, and having that opportunity against FSU would be the first home win against them in a decade, and it would be on your senior day under the lights. What does oh, that yeah. opportunity mean to you and, and your fellow seniors? That'll be good. You know, we said put a little something in history. So, you know, <laughs> I would go out with a bang. That'll be the probably, probably biggest bang we could have went out with. But, you know, but that'll be pretty good. And, and, and I think that'll be a good way to send the seniors out. Final question for you. When all is said and done, how do you want Gator Nation to remember you after you play your last game? Uh, a leader, some, a guy that you can trust, and was a hard worker, and he's going to grind to get it. Well, we have no doubt that they will remember exactly that. Freddie, thank you so much for your time. Good luck to you as you wrap up the season. All right, appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. While football has the weekend off, basketball will be busy, so be sure to check out FloridaGators.com for scores, news, and more. Then come back next Wednesday for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Charleston. Charleston.